Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the sixth week of a series that we've uh, been in this summer called The Answer, where we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is really not a book as much as it is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a young church in the ancient city of Corinth. And for anybody joining us for the first time today, the reason we are spending the summer studying through the book of 1 Corinthians is because if you were to do a little bit of study into ancient Corinth, you would discover that there are a lot of similarities between their city and our city. Uh, Like us, Corinth was a port city where people were constantly coming and going. It was a place of commerce, widely recognized for its wealth and its influence. And like San Francisco, it was the kind of city that had uh, an influence that stretched far beyond its borders. What happened in Corinth affected ultimately the entire Roman Empire. Uh, But in addition to being known for its wealth and its influence and its progressive nature, it was also known as a bit of a den of depravity a place where people would go to experiment and and play with all kinds of sinful things that the the world had to offer. Uh, If you were to walk down the streets of Corinth, you would see countless pagan temples erected to pagan gods and goddesses where people would worship in some pretty odd sexual ways. It would not be uncommon for you to witness nudity or drug use or even public sex acts as forms of worship to the foreign gods there in Corinth. So needless to say, it was not the kind of city that was recognized for its high moral character or its Christian values by any stretch of the imagination. But like San Francisco, the Apostle Paul, and like us, believed that the light of the gospel actually works best in the darkest of places, and that if God could get a hold of the hearts of the people of Corinth, it could affect far beyond the borders of Corinth. And so in the same way, we've planted this church and many other churches exist in our city because we believe that the influence of Jesus can reach far beyond our borders. He planted a church in AD 49, assuming that God would do a work there that would affect the entire Roman Empire. And that eventually began to take place. Hundreds of people began to come to Christ and the church began to grow. And so finally, after about a year and a half, the apostle Paul decides to leave, feels the church is strong enough to sustain itself without his assistance. He goes on through his missionary planting endeavors, but shortly after he leaves, he gets a bit of a frantic letter from these new Christians because they are discovering it is quite a bit more difficult than they anticipated to live for Christ in their wicked and corrupt culture. They loved God, but they were discovering that some of their pagan Corinthian practices were working their way into the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes them this letter, and one by one, chapter by chapter, he begins to address the issues that they're facing in their church. And with every issue, he shows them how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer to their problem. Hence the title of the series, The Answer. And since our city's like theirs and our problems are not unique to us, they're virtually the same as theirs are, then we believe the solution still remains the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still the answer to every bit of wickedness and depravity that exists in any city across our world. And it still shows us how to live for Christ in a culture like ours. And so week by week, we've been going through chapter by chapter, uh, considering the problem, contextualizing it to our setting, and then discovering how the gospel can fix such a problem. 
if you've missed any of those, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to them online or check them out on the podcast, um, because I really do believe there is no greater form of unity than when a church begins to embrace the truth together. We're all listening to the same thing and hearing the same thing and embracing the same scriptures. Uh, when we go through these books, it really is important that you stay up to date with the messages. Uh, specifically, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon, because uh, Robin and I were not here. We were out on vacation, and our phenomenal kids pastor, Jazzy, brought an amazing word. We got back and compared skin tones, and I think I'm a little bit darker, so it's working out well for me at the moment. But no, I gave her a very challenging uh, passage of scripture. She got 1 Corinthians 5, which is all about a guy sleeping with his stepmom, and uh, she just told all of us not to do that, which, so hopefully you're not doing that anymore. Uh, that's great. Uh, but seriously, phenomenal message. And I, I know that I joke about this sometimes, but I, I do want to be serious for a moment. Um, I love it when we are gone and I get text messages from people in our church saying, just stay on vacation because the team is phenomenal. Everyone who's running things around here, they're crushing it right now. We have an amazing team here at the Father's House. So I think one, I think one of the greatest signs of health is when the church is not built on the backs of a couple people, but on the shoulders of many people, and then anybody could stand up on the stage and bring the word of God and things function with or without a couple of pastors here. So give it up one more time for our team. We love you, Jazzy. We love our team, everybody who serves. Great job. I'm gonna give you the next difficult one. We'll see how hard I can make it for you. Uh, so it is week six, which means we are going to tackle chapter six of First uh, Corinthians, and uh, we will get into yet another problem that the Corinthian church faced that I think is actually more prevalent in our world today. But before we get into that particular problem, I do need to make mention of another problem that we see in chapter six, which I will not be teaching on today for fear that if I don't at least mention this, my dad, who is an attorney, will scold me for it afterwards. Uh, the first half of chapter six finds the Apostle Paul reprimanding the church in Corinth for the way that they are handling some financial legal disputes. Uh, he says, and I quote, when one of you has a legal dispute with another brother or sister in the church, how dare you bring your case to a secular judge and allow somebody who is not filled with the Spirit of God to decide the outcome of your situation? How dare you parade yourselves in front of the public and claim to be believers, but do what everybody else in the world is doing, just suing everybody any chance you can get. You guys are Christians, your family, your brothers and your sisters. You should have the ability to work things out amicably among yourselves within the church without having to involve a judge. In fact, he goes on to say that one of the greatest signs of maturity is the ability to be wronged personally without seeking justice for yourself which is a bit of a foreign concept in our world right now. Everybody loves seeking their own justice. But here's what I know, at least to my knowledge, there are not any lawsuits among the brethren here at the Father's house. Uh, hopefully nobody's suing anybody here today. But if perhaps someone is, go back and read through the first 11 verses of chapter six, let the words of the Apostle Paul convict you as necessary, and then sort it out among yourselves, don't go to court. Can we all just agree to do that, is that all right? Good, okay, don't sue nobody, all right? Good, okay. Moving on then to the more universal problem and I would suggest uncomfortable problem of chapter six. Uh, again, one that I think is very prevalent in the lives of our, our city today. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse 12. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. 
But you can't say that your bodies were made for immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures declare, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Somebody smile at me. <laughs> oh, it's going to get awkward in church today. And honestly, this is one of those subjects that I think our city, our culture would love for the church to not address. In fact, there's probably someone maybe here for the first time today going like, I wish you would not address this within the walls of the church this morning. That is a bit of an awkward topic. Some might even consider it an inappropriate topic to discuss. But here's what I know. Part of my job is to ensure that we don't edit out or water down the scriptures, treat the Bible like a buffet and go, I'll take some of this, I'll take some of this, I'll take some of that, and, but I'm not gonna talk about that. Part of my job is to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me Jesus, okay? So in the face of it, if this is your church, you know that we love to talk about uncomfortable things. We embrace the awkward. We're gonna do what nobody else is willing to do, and today that means we're talking about our bodies. <laughs> so buckle up, buttercup. It's gonna get awkward, but I believe the Holy Spirit's gonna speak to us today. You up for it? Let's, uh, let's pray. Actually, let me offer you a title. I want to offer this in light of what we just read in those last couple of sentences. I want to call this chat, My Body is a Temple. My Body is a Temple. I would have you turn to somebody and tell them that. That could get a little bit weird, all right? Let's pray. Jesus, help. Amen. All right. That's a good prayer. <laughs> in fact, stretch your hands out towards me. Jesus, help. Okay, amen. Let's do it. So in order for us to accurately dissect this scripture, we first need to focus in on a couple of statements that Paul makes at the beginning, a repeated phrase that he uses three times, uh, these two words. He says, you say, you say. First, he says, you say that I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Then he says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but you must not become a slave to that anything. And then lastly, he says, you say the stomach was made to be filled with food and food to fill the stomach, but that's only part of the story. Let me tell you why that's not entirely true. So, so three times he repeats this phrase, you say, you say, you say. And because of the way he words it here, we might assume that Paul is simply regurgitating something that he has heard other believers in the church say, something that they've used as an excuse for their sinful behavior. But as you study, you'll discover that theologians will tell us Paul is not uh, regurgitating something he's heard from other Christians. Rather, he is quoting some of the core tenets of a belief system that had begun to infiltrate and pollute the church of Jesus Christ in their day, a belief system known as Gnosticism. Now, that's probably not a familiar term to many in the room, but we could go down a deep rabbit trail. We're not going to. Let me just kind of water down Gnosticism to say this. It was simply a belief system that assumed all created matter was evil. So anything you can see, anything you can touch, this podium, this microphone, your body, it is, it is evil by nature. However, the human spirit is innately good. 
Now, because of that belief system, they assumed that when someone came to Christ and they gave their life to Jesus, that their soul, their spirit was purified. And once their spirit was purified, it was incapable of becoming corrupt ever again, which meant that you could do whatever you wanted to do with your physical body and it would not affect the condition of your spirit. You could go out and treat your body however you wanted to, sleep with whatever you wanted to, drink whatever you wanted to, indulge in whatever you wanted to, but because your spirit was impervious to corruption in light of your salvation, everything was going to turn out fine. Which is a pretty convenient doctrine when you think about it, right? Like, how nice. All you gotta do is say a prayer, and then you accept the free gift of salvation, and then you can live your life however you wanna live, never worrying about whether or not it will result in you going to heaven or not, or even affecting your spiritual condition here on earth. Very convenient. But while convenient, I think all of us could attest, that ain't true. I think anyone with the Spirit of God living on the inside of them knows that that is not true. If it were true, we would never feel things like conviction or regret when we do certain things with our bodies because God would not convict you for something that was not wrong. But by nature of the fact that we feel conviction and nature of the fact that we feel regret when we do things we shouldn't do that are sinful, we prove that our physical actions do in fact have spiritual consequences. It makes me ask the question, I wonder how much you have to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit in order to buy into a belief system like Gnosticism. I wonder how much you have to ignore that conviction, that little voice that's like, don't do that, don't go there, don't date them, don't, I'll stop there. (laughs) How many times do you have to ignore that voice to go, oh, it doesn't matter what I do with my body? I hear people say all the time, well, I just don't have a conviction about that. Well, you probably did at some point, but you just ignored the Holy Spirit long enough until you became numb to him. That's another sermon for another day. In fact, I think it's chapter eight, so we'll get there in a couple weeks, buckle up. But because of the convenience of this Gnostic belief system, it began to grow in popularity in the New Testament church and especially in Corinth, specifically in the way that people engaged sexually. They begin to join themselves with prostitutes and sleep around with multiple partners and do detestable things with their bodies because they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do in the flesh without it affecting the condition of their spirit. And so Paul comes now in chapter six of this letter to correct their wrong thinking, to address toe-to-toe Gnosticism. And he makes himself very clear. I don't care what you say. I don't care what your culture says. This is not okay. In fact, if you go back just a couple of verses in verse nine and verse 10, you'll see him say very clearly, anybody living that sort of life will never inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, there are eternal consequences to a mindset that you buy into when you say, I can do whatever I wanna do in the flesh and assume that my spirit is okay. There's some problems there. But as we've said each week, this is not intended to be a 16 week history lesson on the failures of an ancient church. We are not here to point the finger at the Corinthians and say, oh, how foolish they were. No, the reason these scriptures were preserved for us in the eternal canon is not so that we could look at other people's lives and judge them, but rather so that we could self-assess. So that we could ask ourselves the question, does this, their problem, exist in me? Have I allowed some of the teachings of Gnosticism even subtly to affect the way that I live my life as a follower of Jesus? Is Gnosticism still something that plagues our communities and our churches today? And I will be the first person to raise my hand and say, when it comes to our culture, absolutely. 
Gnosticism is not something that died with the first century church. It is alive and well today, my friends. And I know that over the next couple of moments, I'm about to say a couple things that will offend some people. I'm gonna step on a couple of toes. I know that what I'm about to wade into is some cultural landmines and people might go, oh, this is not my church anymore and you're not my pastor anymore. And I understand what I'm about to navigate through. And as always, I offer, if you have a problem, David at tfh.church. He will solve all of your problems. Right? Okay, good. Okay. But we got to talk about this stuff. It exists in our world. I think that our culture has embraced the teachings of Gnosticism with arms wide open. I would venture to say it is more prevalent today than it has ever been in our world. To quote the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter one, we have become a society that idolizes the human body and forgets the one who created it, who worships the things created and not the creator himself, assuming we can do whatever we wanna do in the flesh without it affecting the condition of our spirits. We live in a world that says, give the body whatever it wants, whenever it wants, for to deny the body is to deny your very identity. We've even gone as far as to legislate giving the body whatever it wants and claimed it is a human right. My body is the mantra of our day. It is a modern version of Gnosticism. And it is the two words that we use to excuse all kind of evil behavior. My body allows us to nip and tuck and abuse and indulge and abort whatever we want to do in this life because it's my choice to do whatever I want to do with my body. We've made it an idol. Our body is our God and we do whatever it tells us to do. And it gets a little bit quiet on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but in this embracing of Gnosticism, our culture has become proud of things that once made us ashamed. Things that were done in secret or in the shadows uh, because people knew deep down that they were, they were wrong are now publicly praised, celebrated in the streets, applauded in the public squares by a culture that is equally as corrupt. We've become, as Isaiah chapter four says, those who call darkness light and light darkness, who call evil good and good evil. As the prophet Joel says, we have forgotten how to blush as a society. But listen, we are not here today to point an aggressive finger or a judgmental figure, finger at our society. As Jazzy told us last week in chapter five, we are reminded of the fact that it is not our job to judge a wicked and corrupt culture. We should not be surprised when sinful and broken people do sinful and broken things because that is what they do. Haters are gonna hate, players are gonna play, sinners are gonna sin. It's just what they do. Our job is not to judge, but as those filled with the Spirit of God, our job is to love them and to be kind and patient with our society, understanding that it was the kindness of God, come on, that brought us to a place of change with Jesus. Romans 2, can't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, patient God was with you? Can't you see that it was his love that led you to a place of change? So we don't stand in our ivory towers and chuck stones at our society. We treat them the same way that Jesus treated us, with love and tolerance and patience and kindness. That's what we're supposed to do. But while we should not be surprised by immorality in our society, we should be concerned if that immorality exists in us. We should be concerned 
if we've allowed Gnosticism into our lives as followers of Jesus, if we've bought into the lie that we can do certain things with our bodies and God's just okay with it, that it'll never affect our spiritual condition. And just to be clear about what we're discussing here this morning, a PG-13 moment in the sermon, let me tell you what Paul is speaking to directly here in this text. When he says immorality, he uses the Greek word pornea, which is where we actually get our word pornography. But the word is not specifically associated only with those who look at sexual images for their own gratification. In fact, it is one of the broadest sexual terms in the entire Greek language. It encompasses, and I want to read these so I don't miss any of them, premarital sex, fornication, which is ultimately any form of sex or arousal that doesn't go all the way, affairs, perversion, sexually even overly sensual entertainment, self-mutilation for sexual purposes, and the idolization of sex individually or culturally. It is a broad definition. And Paul comes to the church and he would come to the church again today and he would say, guys, let's be clear. I don't care what you say. I don't care what your culture says. I don't care if they've told you or your favorite politician has told you or your news station has told you that this is a right and you should be able to do whatever the heck you want to do. I come back to the centrality of the scriptures and I'm going to tell you what God says about this situation. And as far as God is concerned, this is not okay. You cannot do whatever you want to do. He cares deeply, Paul says, about your bodies. There are both earthly and eternal consequences for the way you conduct yourself in the flesh. In fact, he goes on to say that there are, uh, there's a magnified pain. There is exponentially more uh, payout for this particular sin. He says no other sin so clearly affects the body than the immorality that we're discussing here today. Not that God's grading sin. All sin is equal in God's eyes. But while all sin is equal, all consequence is not. And he makes it abundantly clear there are some unique consequences associated with sexual sin. And I think some of us in the room could attest to that truth today. Yeah, it'll mess you up. But in the middle of all of this accusation, Paul poses a question. And it is the question that inspired the title of the sermon today and the question that I want to spend the remaining portion of our time together discussing. Here's the question he poses. He says, don't you realize that your body is a temple? Don't you realize that your body is a temple? How many have ever heard that phrase before? Anyone ever said, okay, basically all of us in the room. Yeah. Now, ironically, when you heard it, chances are you've probably not heard it from somebody who was quoting scripture or may not even understand the origin of the phrase. It's become a bit of a, a catchphrase in the health world. And generally when somebody says it, they're not speaking about abstinence or, or, you know, avoiding certain sexual sins. They're talking about how they care for their physical body. Someone who takes their health, their health very seriously. Uh, and honestly, as I was thinking about this sermon last week while we were on vacation, I could not help but think about that phrase because I actually heard it a couple of times at the place that we were staying. And I thought, oh, you guys are teeing me up perfectly for this sermon today. I can't help but look at the world through the lens of a preacher. I see sermons everywhere. And yes, I even saw a sermon on vacation. So Robin and I, um, we are traditionally trip takers and not vacationers. And yes, there is a difference. Uh, for those who may not know, trip takers are 
People who love adventure, they love adrenaline. Uh, they don't like going back to the same places over and over again. They like to find someplace new, go to uncharted territory, probably get into trouble at some point. That those are, those are trip takers. Uh, vacationers, on the other hand, are people that love to return to the same relaxing environments over and over again. They dream of sitting in those chairs in the cabana and allowing the sun to hit them all day long while they crack open a good book and people bring them drinks and food to, to, their, to their table beside them and they get massages all day long. Like, that's a vacationer. So uh, neither one is better than the other. How many vacationers do we have? Okay, how many trip takers do we have? Oh, okay, my people, all right. I don't think that you're better than the other people, but just there's more of you, okay? This means we should all vacation together. It'll be great. Well, Robin and I, this last week, we, we decided to forego our traditional trip-taking because our life had enough adventure all by itself uh, for the last couple of months, and so we just wanted to vacation and relax and exist. And so we booked uh, six days at a place that I could best describe as equal parts all-inclusive and kind of a wellness resort. For those unfamiliar with a wellness resort, it's a magical place <laughs> where there are no children and ample supplies of great food and you have all these exercises planned out for you like water aerobics and you can even cycle underwater. Uh, there's all these pools, infinity pools, where you feel like you're one with the ocean and just with nature. And, just sit there and smile the whole time. And, and what wellness resort would be complete without ample spa treatments, massages and facials and detoxification treatments and manicures and pedicures. And Oh my, it was fantastic. But when we went to this place and we checked in, we discovered that included in our stay was a daily spa treatment that I had never experienced before called hydrotherapy. Anyone ever done hydrotherapy before? Okay. Guys, <laughs> I always knew I needed therapy. I did not know I needed it with water, but I did. It was amazing. So let me just walk you through this a little bit. We got a little bit of time, so let me just walk you through this. So you show up to the spa, you put on a robe, they walk you into the area where you do hydrotherapy, and you start off by doing 15 minutes in a sauna. Someone comes in there and they spray you down with lemongrass, and you sit there in the sauna in your bathing suit, and you sweat out all of the impurities in your life. And then after 15 minutes, you get out and they hand you this little cold green tea and you drink it and you're like, this is refreshing. And then they walk you to the next room where you sit and you put aloe vera on your burnt skin and then you let ice chips melt all over you as your body comes back to temperature. You're like, this is incredible. But it's not even close to over because then you get out after seven minutes and they hand you yet another drink, this time hibiscus. And then they take you over to this, uh, this eucalyptus steam room where you sit and you just... Breathe in all the good, and you breathe out all the bad and the negativity in your life. And then you leave that room, and they hand you yet another beverage. This time it's, um, thank you, not chloroform. I said chloroform. Chlorophyll and mint. <laughs> Don't drink chloroform. It's not good for you. And, uh, and then you stand in the shower with all these jets head to toe that keep changing temperatures and wash you off. Then you go over to this chair. You lay down in the chair. It's like a heated tile thing. They massage your scalp and put cucumbers on your eyes. And then when you're all finished in that room, they walk you into what could best be described as a Roman bathhouse with three different pools where you take turns overheating your body in a spa, cold plunging until your skin gets numb. And then you end in the middle pool under warm waterfalls and jets of water reclining in the pool. <sighs> Guys, it's going to be in heaven. I promise. 
If it's not, you can come to my house in heaven. It'll be in my house in heaven. I will make sure it is built into to my backyard. It's phenomenal. But on the second day of this hydrotherapy, I was sitting in the sauna with uh, what I would describe as a couple of bros. And these bros were clearly into their bodies. This was not their first rodeo doing hydrotherapy. They, they, they made that very clear that, that they had been in this particular setting many times before and they wanted everybody in the sauna to know about it. And at one point, one of the guys literally used the phrase that we're discussing today. He's like, well, you know, bro, because like my body's like a temple. I'm like, yes, it is. Look at your body. My God, you're an Adonis. But I knew that he was not talking about 1 Corinthians 6 because then he invited me to a strip club afterwards. And I thought, that's clearly not what you meant. I did not go, just to be clear. But what I found ironic was a few hours after we were in this sauna together, I witnessed this same group of guys sitting at the pool bar, taking shot after shot after shot after shot while they got wasted and they made a fool of themselves in front of everybody else. As if to assume that as long as they spent an hour in the spa, it really didn't matter what they did outside of the spa because it wouldn't affect the condition of their health. And as I saw these bros get wasted, I could not help but consider, I wonder if there are some Christians doing the exact same thing. Not taking shots in the pool, because if you're doing that, please stop, okay? Like, that's not a good idea. It's up there with sleeping with your stepmom. Just don't do it, all right? But I wonder how many Christians have compartmentalized their life in such a way where as long as they take care of their soul in one setting, they believe that they can do whatever they want to do in the other settings of life without it affecting the condition of their spirit. They come to church, they sing the songs, they listen to the teaching, they do their hour in the Sunday spa, but then they wade back into the pool of life and it's shot, 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 shot fornicating with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, looking at pornography over there, enjoying sexual and sensual material and entertainment, entertaining an affair, flirting to go down the list, assuming that as long as I take care of my soul in church, I can do whatever I want to do out there in the world without it affecting my spiritual condition. But to anyone who would be living such a soulfully negligent life, the Apostle Paul would come once again to the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, and he would ask the same question. Don't you realize that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit? Don't you realize that the Spirit of God is living on the inside of you? You are housing the Holy One. He lives in you. As one pastor said, what you drink, you make God drink. What you watch, you make God watch. What you do, you drag the Spirit of God into it with you. And so no, we cannot compartmentalize our lives and think as long as I'm okay here, I can do whatever I want to do over there. He either has all of my life or none of my life. He either exists as Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. The totality of my existence belongs to him. Don't you realize that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? That was his question. But I would like to ask my own question if I could this morning. I don't want to borrow his. Let me pose my own. In light of what Paul says, how are you treating your temple? 
Are you treating your life, your body, as if it is housing the Holy Spirit? I think about a pregnant mother, the way that she would care for her life, understanding that she was carrying something precious. Things that she wouldn't take in any longer. Risks she wouldn't take any longer. Why? Because the nature of what is inside of her is so precious. So I just, I can't do these things anymore because I'm protecting something that's on the inside of me. Do, do you have such a conviction about the spirit of God living on the inside of you or have you lived recklessly? And as you consider that question, I would encourage you to not limit it to your sexuality. I know that the nature of this chapter is that it's all about sex, but if God owns our bodies, then everything we do with our body matters. Your mental health matters. Your physical health, it matters. What you do with the gifts or don't do with the gifts that God has entrusted to you, it matters because it's his body. In fact, if our bodies belong to him, the way that we rest and the way that we work matters to God. For to overcorrect on either side is to live in an area of sin. As the pastor Christine Kane says, yes, rest is important, but rest is for a purpose. The purpose of rest is to press. We rest so that we can work, so that we can be diligent. We're not trying to escape life. Do not buy into the cultural lie of excessive self-care where we become numb to doing anything of value while we sit around and care for ourselves. Yes, rest is important, but too much rest, that's a sin. It's called slothfulness. It's all throughout the scriptures. And if our rest leads to the detriment of our work or even worse, the negligence to the gifts that God has given us to build his kingdom, then your rest has become a sin, my friend. If our body belongs to God, then all of it belongs to him. I love what the theologian Spurgeon says. He says, your body was a willing horse when it was in the service of the devil. Let it not be a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. <laughs> the old guys say it best. Selah. How are you treating the temple? Because listen, last thought here. According to this passage, the way that we treat our bodies does not just affect the condition of our spirit, but it also reflects our commitment to the gospel. Look at what Paul says here in this final scripture as the worship team comes and we prepare to close, but here's how he concludes this section. He says, you do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. As we've said each week, Paul addresses the problem and then displays for us how the gospel is the answer to that problem. And today is no different. As he concludes this portion of his letter, he once again displays how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to the pornea problem in the church. And in the original language, the way that this section of the letter is written, it's written with some passion, as if Paul was preaching it. It would be the modern equivalent of all capital letters and exclamation points. And since that is how the Apostle Paul chose to conclude his, this section of the letter, I find it only appropriate for us to conclude the sermon today in the same manner. So pardon me as I maybe get a little bit passionate in these last couple of seconds about this particular phrase. But let me repeat what the Apostle Paul said. Your body is not yours. Your life does not belong to you. Our existence is not ours to master, 
to dictate, to plan out. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. As I reminded us of a couple of weeks ago when we talked about stewardship, Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, if anybody wants to be my follower, they must take up their cross, deny themselves, give up, divorce a life of comfort, and then you can come and follow me. Let me remind us today, the gospel is not rainbows and butterflies and prosperity and health at all times. The truth of the gospel is that we willingly embrace discomfort for the purpose of building the kingdom of Jesus Christ here on planet earth. It is no longer my chart, my destiny, my future. It all belongs to him. It's not my life, it's his. It's not my body, it's his. And it's his according to the scriptures because he purchased it. Paul says, you were bought at a high price, so you must honor God with your bodies. What was that high price? It was the very blood and the life of Jesus Christ that purchased us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. But Romans 6 that that, says that that sin earned us death. The wages of sin is death. Before Christ, all of us deserve to spend an eternity apart from him. But because he loved you and he saw you and he cared for you, he said, I will give up the breath in my lungs. I will shed my blood on that cross and I will pay the ultimate price so that I can buy back every one of those wages of death. That night of failure bought back by the blood of Jesus. That broken marriage bought back by the blood of Jesus. That regrettable moment bought back by the blood of Jesus. That addiction bought back by the blood of Jesus. Every lie, every failure, every shortcoming, every moment purchased back and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. And now having been bought back, Paul says, don't go back to your life of death. Don't return back. Put up for sale what has already been purchased. No, fall at the feet of Jesus. Say, you gave your life first for me, so now I gladly lay my life down to follow you. It's not my body, it's yours. It's not my will, it's yours. That's the invitation of this chapter. It's not an invitation to live a prudish life and have no fun. Oh, it's an invitation to embrace the gospel. He loved you so much that he gave himself up and he invites you to love him enough to do the same in return. Yeah, and that's the invitation I wanna pray for as we conclude this morning. In fact, why don't we bow our heads as, as we pray. Lord, we're not, um, we're not blind to the, the culture that we live in. We, we know what is propagated outside these doors and what is preached to us by, by our culture. And God, if, if we within the body of Christ have entered into a space where we've accepted any of those lies, we just, we repent today. God, we pray that our theology would not be formed by cultural narrative. It would not be formed by politicians. It would not be formed by the persuasions of our day, but that our theology would be formed by the scriptures, that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. And God, for anyone in the room today who might find themselves in a state of compromise with their bodies, we just once again lay them at your feet. We give ourselves completely again over to you. Forgive us 
But God, use us as we were singing earlier, as we lay our lives down at your feet. I feel like the Holy Spirit would say to somebody today that maybe you have been unwilling to take that next step in your faith and that next step for you is water baptism. Maybe you've been apprehensious, holding back. But as you think about your physical body, one of the greatest acts of faith and one of the greatest moments of empowerment would be for you to step into those waters of baptism like you saw JT and Camille do today and to be empowered to actually break free from the thing that you think is holding you back from that next step. God, if there's anyone in here struggling with that, let them hear that and make the decision today. And before we conclude, I wanna take a moment and pray for anyone in the room who might say, uh, Pastor Tim, I, I feel like I need to hand the totality of my life over to Jesus. You're talking about our physical bodies, I've been using mine for a lot of ungodly purposes, but that's because I don't know that God has my heart. Maybe at one point you served him and you've drifted, but maybe today is the first time you've ever heard the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus gave his life for you and wants to save you give you a place with him in heaven. And if that's you today, I wanna to pray a prayer of commitment along with you before we conclude. This is the most important moment of your life. And if you need to pray that prayer along with me and say, I need to be included, would you just quickly, no one's looking around, just slip up your hand and say, Tim, that's me. I need to pray with you and give my life to Jesus this morning. Thank you, bro, I got you right there. Yeah, I got you right there, awesome. Hallelujah. Anyone else today? Right on. Oh, you can put your hands down. Everybody, would you pray this along with me and those that are praying so that they don't feel alone? Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate one more time. Every single one of those making that decision today. So good. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.